Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am doing okay. How are you? Doing well. It feels like summer's truly come to San Francisco. The nights are getting longer. The weather's getting warmer. It's nice to walk home from work. It makes it a pleasure to come back and then jump on the phone and speak to you. Well, very good. You, you say what? You have like a couple of weeks of summer before winter returns. Is that <laughs> that's how it works? <laughs> yes. And then we get another summer after winter's finished. The weather around here is crazy sometimes. Well, speaking of weather, I thought I'd write this week about the weather around tech companies and around the world. That was a terrible segue, but uh, I, I tried. I was going to go like as quickly as the seasons change in San Francisco. Oh, better, better. Wow. I feel like we should start recording so we just smooth that one in. But I want to keep it this way so I can retain my amazement at how good that was. Very good. <laughs> Pushing through bad segues. This week, it's interesting. It was kind of a slow week generally in tech that is going to change dramatically next week. There is both the Uber S1 is coming out and then also Disney's announcing their two streaming services. That's how it goes sometimes. Like there's two huge things I want to write about. They're going to both happen the same day. It's very, it's very annoying. But I want to take the time this week really following on on some of our discussion last week. You know, I mentioned in the podcast that I was maybe going to write a weekly article about the YouTube YouTube stuff. And I didn't. I kind of, you know, I wrote a couple daily updates about it in part because there's things I wanted to say about it. Like in the daily updates, I talked about the Section 230 stuff. I talked about the First Amendment stuff. I talked about the idea of like sins of commission, omission, those sorts of things. But there are pieces, right? And kind of this week, thinking about over the weekend, the way I sort of wanted to gel those thoughts together kind of came to me where, you know, this idea of regulation tech companies, and believe me, it's not a very popular and sexy topic. My page view counts reflect that. Um, and this is a consistent thing. It's funny. People hate reading about Facebook and they hate reading about regulation and they like reading about Amazon and they like reading about Microsoft, surprisingly, another one of my popular ones. But regardless, it is something that needs to be said. And I wanted to get something out that kind of inserted some lines and put some boxes around this sort of discussion, because I think what worries me, and you can see this in a lot of the stuff that's happened just in the last couple of weeks, so this is very timely, is there's sort of a blanket approach being taken to some very real issues, and we'll get into what those issues are, and they touch on some of the stuff we talked about last week, but if you take sort of like a sledgehammer to what really needs much more of a scalpel, and that sledgehammer is sort of backed by law and, you know, backed by guns, <laughs> like the not on effects are going to be very, very bad and make the situation worse and also probably not fix the problem. And so what I wanted to do is sort of put out in one piece, look, I don't have all the answers here. I think it was pretty clear in that piece, you know, it was entitled a regulatory framework for the internet. I don't have all the answers as to what the regulation should be, but what I want to put forward is a sort of framework to think about where specifically these regulations should be focused and how we can constrain them to sort of cause the least harm generally. Yes, it's a noble goal, page counts notwithstanding. Fortunately, I don't have an ad-based model, so it yes, works out for me. incentives are aligned. It's perfect. That's right. You know, that sort of gets into, I think, sort of the core thing that I was thinking about. So let's back up on sort of a big picture philosophical level. I think both you and I are generally by default fairly skeptical of regulation. I think that's an attitude that is widespread in the tech industry. And it makes sense that that is widespread in the tech industry because what's the big concern about regulation? Like you can write laws about harms that are happening in front of you, but it's very hard to sort of measure the costs of that because so many of those 
those costs are things that don't happen. They're opportunity costs. They're things that don't occur because there's too much regulatory red tape or there's too much sort of entrenchment of the incumbents that come from that. And given that the tech industry generally is sort of predicated and built around challengers coming up and new opportunities, it makes perfect sense that there's a general skepticism about regulation in the tech industry, despite the fact that the tech industry has had monopoly sort of companies and does have these large sort of things. But there's such a history of those only being temporary and being upset that I think that most folks are justifiably skeptical about things that lock things in as they are. Yeah. Stepping back a little further, even you think about the internet and the promise of the internet that people would be able to reach each other and you develop something and the audience is global. And as you layer regulation on top of that, just by virtue of the nature of regulation, it is fundamentally a local thing. And the more it delves into the inner workings of the internet, the more you inherently balkanizing the dream. You're breaking the dream apart as opposed to one global audience. We're winding back almost a little bit to where we started in a world of physical distribution, where you were thinking about countries as opposed to thinking about addressing the world on an idealized level. That's pretty sad for me, right? Yeah, I think kind of inherent in that is who is the spokesperson? Who is the person fighting for the sort of global opportunity? And by global opportunity, I don't mean multinational companies. What I mean are people like me. <laughs> you know, like this is certainly a personal thing, but the fact that I can live in Taiwan, I have, you know, subscribers in 85 countries around the world or whatever it is, like these unique sort of opportunities. And again, I don't think this is a that's fine for Ben. I think there's a huge amount of opportunities. I mean, we're seeing that, frankly, it's very gratifying in just like the sort of Paid newsletter space or paid podcast space, which I think is great, but we're seeing it in all sorts of things. We see it with platforms like Shopify or platforms like Etsy or whatever it might be, this idea that just a small team or even one person can build a business and take advantage of the fact that their addressable market is the global market. To me, not only is that really cool, but I think it's critical in a world where the sort of traditional industrial structure that has employed huge swaths of people is certainly under strain to, to say the very least. And, you you know, we ought to be very, very careful to limit these sort of possibilities in the future, not simply because it's a bummer for me, but because it's a problem, I think, for society. But who in countries that are built around these industrial structures and are raised in this and their entire worldview is shaped by this and they're being lobbied by the incumbents of these structures is looking out for these sort of new opportunities. Yeah, no one. It's one of these things where there's a typically concentrated interest to control it, but the benefits are spread across the entire planet and they're not spread quite as tightly, with perhaps the exception of places like San Francisco, where these companies are housed, like everyone benefits a small amount, but the costs are being borne disproportionately by a small and very powerful group in each of these countries. And then they start the lobbying process and then away we go. Yeah, well, in San Francisco, except when it comes to, like housing or anything local. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you want to see how regulation can go very, very wrong. So by and large, that's our sort of, I think I speak for both of us. That's where we come from. And I think we've been pretty consistent on that point. And, you know, even to the extent that you are more 
pro regulation than me. I think that you've always been very cognizant of this sort of hang up. But the points where you have been concerned, I think I've moved closer to you in some respects. And again, to stay on the sort of the philosophical level, when is regulation appropriate? Regulation is appropriate when there is sort of like a market failure, when there is no sort of natural check on problematic behavior. Because, you know, in a well-functioning sort of market, the check is price. It's customers not buying your products. It's people going elsewhere, you know, because you're not making great things. Again, I'm not saying this is a cure-all. I am by no means a hardcore libertarian, not at all. We do need things like food safety laws. And to take like an extreme example, it's not like, oh, you should be able to kill a bunch of people and then people will desert your company because they don't want to die. No, that's taking it too far. That's why, for example, I'm much more sympathetic to generally speaking antitrust because the idea of antitrust is there is a market failure and you need to remedy that market failure so that you can bring back the natural policing power of sort of a market mechanism. So the concern we have with regulation, I mean, what's the framing that we always used in the past? The silent screams of the businesses that were never born. But there's some version of that that exists in market failure as well. And not that this is the only kind, like there are other kinds of market failures, so environmental or whatever, but one that is particularly concerning when it comes to the case of market failure inside of an economic system is when it suppresses a whole bunch of economic activity that wouldn't have otherwise happened. The businesses that couldn't get started because a monopolist was crushing them or people didn't even bother trying because they didn't think that they would be able to compete. In economic terms, it's known as deadweight loss. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that captures really nicely why it is that I'm generally much more sympathetic to sort of antitrust regulation because it really does correspond nicely to that's it's a great comparison. The idea of deadweight loss is similar to sort of like the opportunity cost of regulation. But in this case, you kind of mentioned it in passing the regulation that I was kind of more writing about here. This article was less about antitrust regulation and more about sort of traditional like consumer welfare regulation, particularly around this idea of like externalized costs, right? And you see this in the context, I think the most classic example is like pollution, where the reason why you have sort of like fuel standards or you have limits on or regulation about sort of clean air is that the cost of that is borne by society broadly. It's not borne by the single company. And so what you try to do, what you want to do is put a cost on the output that would be borne by society and make that be borne by sort of the companies that are incurring that cost. And this is more of the frame in this particular case about sort Sort of problematic content on sites like YouTube and Facebook. This isn't about deadweight loss per se or about sort of antitrust. This is about the societal costs that come from this content, not just being available, but being accelerated and having that sort of issue that we talked about last week where, yeah, if you have a couple of nut jobs in a single town, it is what it is. But when all the nut jobs in the entire world, the percentage of nut jobs might be the same. But these platforms create this environment where it feels like everyone thinks this way and it radicalizes and then accelerates many of these issues. Yeah, it's scary. It is. And I I think it's fair to be concerned about this. I mean, again, just think about it big picture. I think this idea that this world is different than what came before, like the absence of physical constraints is a really, really big deal. And again, this is, again, very consistent with things we've talked about. What makes the Internet different is the absence of friction. There is no limit on anything. And to me, this introduces a type of market failure that sort of causes these huge amounts of externalized costs on society. And that's sort of like a double whammy of the times where regulation, I think, does make sense. But 
it's super important. Like, is there a way to think about regulation in a way that doesn't incur all those other costs that we're concerned about in an arena that is super important for society as well, right? We don't want to fix externalized societal costs in one place by imposing even greater externalized costs sort of somewhere else. Right. And so in order to get this right, this is the scalpel rather than sledgehammer that you were referring to at the start. It's really important to understand all the pieces of the stack, how they work together, where the problems lie. I mean, I'm normally pretty bullish about my country and I get a few comments around this in terms of emails. It's like, oh, for the exponent drinking game, if Australia comes up or Taiwan comes up, everybody drinks. And so I'm about to do the Australia one, but it's not necessarily in the positive light. Like, I think we just had an instance very recently of Australia introducing a law, trying to limit some of this external cost, but it was doing so in a way that didn't really understand the mechanics that we're talking about here and how the various parts of the stack work. And not only that, it was done in a very rushed fashion. Like if you're going to put laws on the books where you can send people to jail, it is oftentimes worth being considered in your approach. And the law was basically designed to prevent things like... So the terrible tragedy that happened in Christchurch, the killer put it all over Facebook Live and whatever. Obviously, not a great use of Facebook Live. The laws were basically designed to stop that and to put an onus on technology companies to stop that. Now, initially, the way that the law had been drafted was once this had been detected, the government sends a notice and you get 48 hours to take it down. The way that it ended up being written into law was as soon as it is discovered, it is presumed that if you had not taken it down by the the time it was discovered, it was reckless. Now, we're talking about sending people to jail, these massive fines that can be levied. Not only that, it didn't distinguish different types of technology companies. So, Obviously, Facebook or YouTube, they are probably closer to the content and they are part of distributing it. They're the very top part of the stack where the user uploads it there and then other users get recommendations on what to watch or get the alerts from like the social media companies. But the way the Australian government created this regulation, it didn't distinguish between parts of the stack. So it went all the way down to infrastructure companies. And that starts to get pretty terrifying. If you're an ISP, like, are you going to then reach down into everything that every one of your customers are watching in order to determine whether it breaches this law or not? And if you don't, are you risking jail? Now, people who wrote the law is like, oh, no, that's not the way in which we intended it to be written. And that's not the kind of thing that we're going to bring to bear. If you're in one of these businesses, you're just like, I'm just going to trust you that that's the way it's going to work. Yeah, it's difficult to overstate like how bad this is. And, and again, you called what happened in Christchurch a tragedy. Like it was an, a truly awful event, a terrorist attack, a hate crime, whatever sort of awful definition you want to put on it. And the fact that the killer was able to live stream this trivially over the Internet and then it was spread wildly. It's a big problem. It's absolutely a big problem. And we'll get into why it's a big problem and how that was allowed to happen in a moment. So just to be super clear, neither of us are sort of like trivializing what happened or the fact that it was able to be spread in this way. So this gets to what we referenced. So like I get the motivation here. The problem to your point is 
as written, it's awful. Like just to play out what needs to happen. If this law is out there, number one, if you're an ISP in Australia, just building on your point, you have to packet sniff. You have to reach down into all the traffic and try to figure out what's on there. Because if a video like this goes over your wires, the government has basically said someone is going to jail. So all the incentives now are to deeply violate customer privacy, to be basically institute a spying network on all Australian citizens. Like that's the only possible outcome here. And not just ISPs, but goes up to a company like infrastructure providers, like CDNs, like the company you work for, Cloudflare. Like they are now liable as well because it went over their network. And it goes up the stack to everyone involved. Everyone thinks about it. This is such a big problem. What I really want to impress on sort of regulators around the world, you can't build regulations and presume it only applies to Facebook or Google. You have to be clear about it because, yes, there's issues around Facebook here. We're going to get into these issues in a moment. There's issues around YouTube here. We'll get into issues in a moment. But as written, my sort of website provider, for example, I don't run my own server. I rent a server. You know, it's a managed service that takes care of my WordPress installation, all that sort of stuff. Guess what? If I were to post that video, they are now liable. So what are they going to do? Are they start like sniffing and checking out whatever content I'm putting on my website? No. You know what they should do? They should block Australia because it's not worth the legal risk to be in Australia for some small platform provider based in Texas or wherever they are. It's incredibly destructive. It hurts Australians. It's violative of rights. And the only sort of like rational response to this is to basically to leave the country. And I don't think that's what they intended, but this gets at why the sledgehammer approach is just a huge problem. Again, we're not minimizing the goals here, but acknowledging the fact that as implemented, this makes things worse. Yeah, it gives you some hint of like how to approach it and where in the stack you should. I mean, let's take it out of the internet era and wind it back. And obviously the scale of the problem is different, but you don't want the USPS liable for if someone sends something they shouldn't in the mail, or you don't want the phone company liable if someone says something slanderous over a telephone. Like you want to regulate at the point in the infrastructure versus application level stack You've got to get that right or you start having these very perverse consequences and it starts encouraging people who are infrastructure providers to do things that you really actually don't want the infrastructure providers to do at all. So this is sort of the first place where the line, I think, has to be clearly sort of drawn. There needs to be a clear line between sort of infrastructure and sort of the user facing level. Right. If I post something that's against the law on Stratechery, the one that should be liable is me. Right. The one that should not be liable is not my host. The one that should not be liable is not sort of like the ISP or the infrastructure provider, or the CDN or whatever that supports my site. The one that's liable is me. And if regulations about sort of content in particular, which again, have all sorts of problems, but just granting that for a moment, the regulations are going to exist. And by the way, that's sort of my motivation here. These regulations are sort of coming whether we want them or not. And so I think it's super important to sort of establish this principle upfront that there is a clear line between who's actually responsible and propagating that content and the pieces underneath it that are they're just conduits, they're tools, they're infrastructure. Right. It gets me so frustrated that policymakers don't take the time to understand that. Just listening to you talk about it, again, I like taking it back to the previous paradigms and the examples are never perfect just because the nature of the technology has changed. It's almost like when you write technology companies will do this to stop it. It's almost like saying companies will stop it. Like, I don't care what the sin is, like someone's written something in bad on a piece of paper or over the telephone, companies will be 
liable for it. It's like, guys, do the work to understand that there are different parts of the stack that are responsible for doing different things. And if you do this en masse, the unintended consequences of it are going to be huge. Yeah. And frankly, I would take this further. If I were to be able to author like an all up bill that's sort of like defining how the Internet would be regulated, I think locking down this sort of infrastructure layer in sort of both directions. Right. I mean, obviously, I was opposed to using Title II as part of net neutrality, but I try to be clear at the time. I'm very pro net neutrality. Right. I think it's an important principle. I think that ISPs. It goes in both directions. They should not be cutting off content and they should not be forced to cut off content. Well, it's the same principle that goes in both directions that I absolutely do believe and support. And I think that applies not just to ISPs. It applies to you know companies like your employer, right? That are just providing caching services for all intents and purposes, not to minimize what you guys do. But the, this idea of CDNs and, and whatever or DNS providers, there's so many pieces of the Internet that are just tools. Like to me, that's a sort of bedrock principle here. And we'll get to later why this actually makes a lot of other regulation more tolerable because as long as the infrastructure is sort of content neutral, you know, I've talked in the past in the context of like Apple and the app store, like there needs to be like a pressure valve, right? The pressure valve about a lot of the questions around content and around free expression and free speech and all those sorts of things. The pressure valve is that, you know, previously anyone could write up their own pamphlet and spread it around, right? Anyone should be able to set their own website. Like, I just think that that's the thing. Now, whether that website should be available on social media is a sort of a different question that we can get into. But the fact that there is still the capability of anyone to do that, I think, is just sort of a fundamental thing that needs to be kept in place. And the way to keep that in place is to clearly carve out that entire infrastructure layer and say that there is no liability. The liability rests on the people that actually do the publishing, that actually do sort of the distributing. Well, I won't say there's no liability, but the nature of the liability needs to be much more finely tuned. Like if you're hosting copyrighted material, for example, there are instances where you should be able to reach down into that part of the stack, but they should be limited. And No, no, but to be clear, that's a distinction. The ISP should not be responsible for copyright material. Oh, totally. It depends. That's the host. And that's part of understanding the stack. Exactly. That's what I'm referring to. Like where the content actually resides and who's responsible there. And even then, so I'm on WP Engine, like WP Engine should not be liable for copyright material that I illegally put on my site. Like I'm the one that owns the site. I'm the one that's responsible. To me, that fits very much in sort of the framework that I put forward. Sure. Backing up to my employer, like one of the reasons that I wanted to work here was because it was so principled and so thoughtful on some of these issues and like the roles and responsibilities that infrastructure players have in terms of regulating things and when they should be stepping in and when they shouldn't. We should link to some of the stuff that's been written by some of the policy folks because it's really, really thoughtful about how regulation works, at least at the part of the stack that we rest in. We were talking about these before you sent them and like there's this one piece you would hear that's it's sort of very sort of like tactical. It's like, here's the services we have and here's how we think about each of them. But I really like it because I think this fits with what I'm talking about. You basically have like, oh, for like your CDN service or your domain service, which all they are is just shuffling bits around. Like there's no ownership there and there's no way, even if you wanted to, for Cloudflare to reach in and, and do content beyond just like blocking an entire site or dismissing an entire site from the internet, that's not the place to sort of enforce these sort of things. But you also have a service that actually does host files, right? If you're actually hosting the files, then the discussion is different. It's slightly different. And if you were user-facing, if you're posting something directly on the site, it's different still. And I think that distinction about who's actually moving bits versus like who's actually hosting it, it's a good distinction. It's finally done. We'll absolutely link to these in the show notes. And it's pretty dry, but it's worth a read because you can see the sort of the depth of thinking that went into 
how these lines should be drawn. Yeah, I mean, and things like DNS, like regulators and not just regulators, like folks who are a little bit less well-intentioned. So if you're looking to censor, like you'd love to get your hands on DNS because that's the way that you can do some pretty blunt blocking at a very critical level of the technical stack. And so thinking about how these pieces, and if you're a user of the internet in a less regulated place, all this stuff just works in the background, but being thoughtful about the approach is really important. Important. Now, you said how it speaks to the distinction between how you regulate user-facing stuff and how you regulate the infrastructure. And again, going back to my previous metaphors, the way that you regulate a paper company or who gets access to paper should be very different than the approach you take to regulating a newspaper. And that's kind of the distinction I would draw between having a website, which is giving somebody the ability to write on paper and hand out their pamphlets versus something more like Facebook or YouTube, where there are editorial and prioritization decisions that are going on, often algorithmically driven, that have an audience of billions. And understanding that you want to take a different approach to regulating those different things is absolutely essential in this conversation. That's exactly right. And so I want to get back to the point that we, we started on. I was going to talk about the sort of the infrastructure distinction later in the podcast, but we sort of got to it naturally. So let's set that aside. So we've covered that. So the question now is sort of like higher up on the stack where things are hosted. And again, I'm going to use myself as a contrast. Let's compare me sitting on WP Engine, sitting on Linode, compared to, say, a YouTube or Facebook sort of thing. I think there is a useful distinction to make here as well. So let's back up. Big picture, regulation has concerning sort of knock-on facts. We would prefer to have sort of a market-based mechanism to sort of inhibit bad behavior because that prevents us from sort of foreclosing future opportunities, things that can be done, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, there are situations when market failure occurs. That market failure could be dead weight loss and you know, do just more about sort of monopoly and things like that. Or it could be sort of externalized costs on society that are born and ought to be born by sort of the parties in question. So that's the big picture philosophical framework that we're starting with here. And what I would contend with, and this is something that really sort of crystallized me over the weekend, is that our podcast last week really dove into this idea idea of the incentives that drive sites like YouTube and drive sites like Facebook and how engagement is this magic number or this magic metric. And the reason why it's a magical metric is it captures all aspects of the business. It captures the fact that advertisers want scale. It captures the fact that these have winner take all characteristics. It captures the fact that you want to get this flywheel running. You want to get more supply and get more demand. It captures the fact that it really takes advantage of deep sort of upfront fixed cost investment in things like machine learning and recommendation algorithms that pay off sort of indefinitely over time. And that leverage of those investments is magnified the more users you have. Like basically everything that you want to do to make a site like YouTube succeed is perfectly incentivized by driving engagement. And that's great from a business perspective, right? And you can see why these companies have been so focused on this goal because it's like a magical KPI. But you think about that. How do you get a magical KPI? You get a magical KPI when there's sort of no seemingly trade-offs. There's no seeming costs. Everything is going in the right direction. But there are costs. But those costs are externalized and born on society when it comes to things like the anti-vaccination movement, for example, or like the radicalization that we discussed, certainly in the context of what happened in Christchurch. Those are problems. And the problem is there's externalized costs, part one. But the market failure is there's no check on this because on the these platforms, the suppliers of content, 
the consumers of content and the advertisers, they're all distinct from each other. And so the drive is to get more and more content. The drive is to get more and more users, to give those users exactly what they want. And oh, by the way, you're dealing at the scale of the world, which means you're getting sort of like all of humanity who can manage to get online and have a fast enough connection, which means you're going to get all the ugly parts of humanity as well as all the amazing and beautiful parts. And there's no check here. In the old world, to go back to your point about the previous paradigm, the check was physical constraints. At the end of the day, if you're broadcasting video, you're constrained by how far sure your antennas can reach or you're constrained by there's 24 hours in a day. And if there's 24 hours in a day, you're making decisions about what goes on and what doesn't, which means there is an editorial function sort of embedded in that. Even in the world, like anyone could write a newspaper. Yes, but you actually have to buy the paper. You actually have to buy the ink. You actually have to produce it. You actually have to drive it around, distribute it or stand on a street corner. And you, as you, the reference you, you made previously, like there are inherent constraints in the physical world that don't exist in the digital world. So you have this sort of toxic combination or problematic combination of the drive to spread and push and push and whatever combined with no physical limits, which the zero costs of the internet that we've talked about again and again, it's inevitable that this would happen. It's inevitable that you would have these bad actors pushing content, taking advantage of these sites, spooling it all up. No one's paying anything. These people producing these videos aren't paying anything. These users aren't paying anything. The advertisers, as long as their ads aren't alongside the other stuff, they're okay. Why? They're, they're great advertising platforms. Of course they want to be on YouTube. Of course they want to be on Facebook. What do they want? They just don't want their ads next to the bad stuff, right? There's no check on this beyond sort of like the goodwill of executives. And that's not a check at all. Right. I mean, you hear stories of folks inside these companies raising issues just like we are. I won't necessarily say it blinds them to it, but it certainly creates a very strong incentive for folks not to act having this engagement metric. And whether it's the stories that came out of Facebook or YouTube about people seeing things that they found concerning and raising it, but the incentive, the pull of the business to keep it successful prevents the business from acting. And it's not until it gets to this fever pitch on the outside, by which case we have a real problem, that it causes people to act. And one of the things that I really liked in your article this week was how you contrasted that with some of the platforms where you have, or the tech companies where you have users paying. And you gave the example of GoDaddy expressing support for SOPA and having the copyright legislation, and the company had to back down around it because of fear of boycotts. Or the example of folks switching over from Uber to Lyft. They didn't like behaviors that were coming out of Uber and Uber's leadership. And there was a market force that was able to act almost like a feedback loop because customers pay. But here, the feedback loop, it requires society to be suffering en masse. And there's this pressure and the press is starting to pick up on it. And then it's almost like this outer, it's not customers, it's not advertisers, it's not suppliers. It's almost society has to be bearing the cost before anything really gets done. Right. And the motivation then is to stop the pain. It's not to sort of fix the underlying problem. Yes, totally. Yeah, I think this is super important, right? Because again, I've been contrasting sort of like Mr. Checkery being hosted somewhere else compared to like Facebook or YouTube. And this is where it's different. Like if I'm posting stuff that's deeply problematic, like my host is highly incentivized to police that, number one, because they don't want to be associated with it. And also their other customers are going to get mad and like say, we're going to pull our business if you don't get rid of this, right? There's a mechanism to address that. And not only that, because it is a service that's not just free, they have the sort of capability and wherewithal 
to sort of pay attention to what's going on, right? YouTube and Facebook, there's nothing better they like than to have sort of the talking point about there's so much video per minute. There's so many things posted. How on earth can we sort of catch up with it? And that's true to a point, but that's true by design because why is there so much on there? So let's go back to this horrid video in Christchurch. Like at the end of the day, the fundamental issue here, the reason why this spread is because Facebook found it beneficial to their business to make it trivial for anyone to live stream. They've spent billions of dollars on infrastructure to spread that instantly and easily and whatever. And basically you can do something truly awful and have had all the costs subsidized by Facebook. Why? Because Facebook was building infrastructure. They weren't doing it on purpose because they wanted to stream this sort of awful thing. They did it because that's what made sense for their business for an advertising based business driven by engagement. It makes sense to build tools for suppliers. It makes sense to make it easy to get content in the network. It makes sense to make it trivial to share. All this stuff sort of makes sense. And the end result is you end up subsidizing sort of abhorrent stuff. Now, if this guy had to pay for his own streaming server and had to figure out a way to distribute outside of this, like that would obviously be significantly more challenging. And so again, I'm not trivializing what happened at all. Just noting that the incentives of these ad supported mega platforms There is no check on them. There is no check internally. There's no check economically. In fact, all the incentives go in the exact opposite direction and they are causing external costs. There's no sort of incentive check. And I'm left thinking, what else is there but regulation? One thing that I want to caveat in this conversation is clearly we're not trying to turn Facebook into 8chan or 4chan or something here. There's lots of good stuff that gets put on YouTube and I'm- Whoa, talk about a roller first. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) Facebook too, right? Like- Yes, you're right. Role reversal. But I think it bears noting that there's lots of amazing stuff that gets posted on these networks. It's not like this is just a hive of villainy and scum, right? No, to go back to my point last week, I would bet that 99% of stuff, probably even higher, 99.8% of stuff is at worst innocuous, is best great. And believe me, you know, I think both of us have discussed this, living away from our family, living away from our homes, this idea of being able to stay in touch and close. It's truly fantastic. It makes life better. It makes it more fulfilling. It makes my career possible. I couldn't be more biased about these sort of points. So yes, I, I just to build on your point, that's all true. The, the issue though is when you take all the 0.2% of loonies and make them all in one place and you quote unquote build community, a community of loonies, <laughs> like that, you, you have a problem. <laughs> Right. And this is the part, like going back to the beginning where like I was the techno optimist of building, making the globe all connected. And the problem is exactly what you just said. Like, I guess what I underestimated was as we got there and maybe I'm hoping and we've had the conversation around whether we would have been able to do any better and who knows, maybe, maybe not. But I would have hoped that the companies that were building this would have done more than waited for it to hit fever pitch before starting to act because for all the wonderful stuff that you talked about like us being away from our families and being able to stay in contact and all the things that YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and all these companies have unlocked if something isn't done about this and regulation comes in that is inappropriately designed so much of it gets risked like the microcosm of Australia is what happens if they don't do anything and then the regulation comes comes down without an understanding of how this all works, like the whole thing could go up in smoke pretty quickly. 
Yeah. And the thing to keep in mind is our sort of benefits. So sort of put them sort of very vanilla. But like if you think about sort of populations that are traditionally sort of persecuted, that are traditionally sort of shunned, like the Internet is amazing. The fact that you can find people in a similar situation, you or a similar background as you and you can realize sort of you're not alone. Right. I mean, I had a very mild, very, very mild sort of case of this, just being someone that was interested in technology growing up in a place where most people, you know, barely know how to turn on a computer. Like, obviously, there's far more extreme examples of that. And I think this is an important point to keep in mind. This isn't sort of like we're protecting the majorities enjoying the Internet. The idea of this freedom of expression, this freedom to reach out and this really true ability to find a community, it benefits the persecuted more than anyone. I mean, you talked about your experience last week, like my version of that, of like trying to find my place in the gay community when I wasn't super comfortable with it. Like, and that's not something where you can just walk around on the street and be able to see. Being able to digitize those attributes and digitize that community and find people that way and create a safe space, like that's incredible. Yeah, the only people holding signs about gays on street corners are usually not on your side. Exactly. And like us, like even the fact that we found each other through Twitter around mutual interests, like there's so much here to be grateful for. I just think it's so incredibly important that we get this right, because if it's not done well, it all gets risked. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is where I think when you think about big picture, if there's going to be laws, there's going to be regulations inherent in that there's going to be trade-offs. There's going to be things that you lose. There's going to be like dead weight loss, uh, the regulation dead weight loss to go back to your comment earlier. And so what I think is really important here is you want sort of the damage such that there is, you want to try to like have it fall in the right place or, or at least the not worst place is probably a better way to put it. Like if you're cutting down a tree and it's going to fall in a certain direction, whatever's falling under that tree is going to get hurt. So you want to like sort of like minimize that sort of damage. And I think that's a way to think about this. The metaphor I was thinking about was actually in jujitsu. They teach you to like give your opponent your arm if you get their throat. And obviously you don't want to lose your arm, but it's better than losing the fight, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm presuming it's a fight to the death. But this is where I think it's the other line, I think, to be drawn when you think about this. So we already talked about there's kind of like a line where the infrastructure providers are below it and the sort of user facing, consumer facing sites are above it. And that's a really important line to draw because once you start dipping down into that layer, like the consequences are profound. They're not just profound on sort of secondary effects, but you start really fundamentally depriving, I think, people of their rights, whether it be free expression, whether it be privacy. Like to me, that's a sort of a clear, bright line. The question then is above that, I don't want blanket regulation there either, because you start making laws about Facebook or sort of YouTube, which do have these problems that we talked about. And that's going to spill over onto sites running on AWS or sites running on WP Engine in my case, right? And not just that, those are sites that, they have a control on them. They have the market sort of, there's a limit. There's a price mechanism. There is a constraint. And not only that, but there's much less scale. It's much more sort of policeable just by sort of like companies and that are incentivized in a certain way, generally, because the moment you're paying for it, the less stuff there is to sort of deal with. Right. Before we started recording, we were talking about this and the distinction between the editorial type decisions that happen now, which are algorithmic and the editorial type decisions that would happen before, whether it was the Sun or Fox or pick whichever previous news channel or news outlet that you didn't like. And even in that instance, there was a human editor that needed to allow something to go out. And now that just doesn't happen. And the addressable audience isn't just a local job 
geography. It is the entire planet. And both of those things are combining to just make the difference completely profound in the shift. Right. And so the line I would draw is around sort of companies and platforms that are ad-based. And the reason is because that's where all of you have this huge incentive problem. There is no sort of natural check. There is a huge scale problem by virtue of the fact they're incentivized to push that huge amount of scale. Those problems and those sort of failures don't exist when it comes to something like AWS. They don't exist when it comes to something like WP Engine, the site that that strategically runs on. They don't exist in all these other places where there's sort of an exchange of money and there's a defined sort of customer relationship and you know who's uploading stuff and there's an incentive to avoid other customers getting mad about your decisions and deserting your platform and going somewhere else. And there's our competitors because there's fewer sort of monopoly sort of effects. It's just a totally different world. And so we already have a horizontal line and I would draw this sort of vertical line. And this doesn't mean there aren't problems here, right? If you talk about advertising platforms, you're not just talking about Google or Facebook. You're also talking about things like Yelp. You're talking about things like TripAdvisor. You're talking about, you know, there's certainly a question around VC funded platforms that are probably going to be advertising. Like there's a ton of questions here. I'm not saying I have all the answers here, but to my mind, if you think big picture about where these problems actually reside, what's the sort of theoretical underpinning about why regulation might be necessary? And to me, that comes from the societal costs and the sort of lack of a market sort of mechanism to correct it. Actually, it's quite clear that this is the specific area where there's an issue. Mm. When you mention companies like Yelp and companies like TripAdvisor, it's clear that that's not really where there's a problem and that's definitely going to be unintended consequences. And you had the big ones in mind when you were talking about ad-supported platforms. Again, to be clear, I really liked what you wrote this week. I think what you were using is ad support as a proxy for these companies that use engagement as the North Star and it's not perfect. And the example that came to mind was actually Google, which is a massive ad support platform. Oh, right. Like Google search. Yes. Google search, not YouTube. YouTube's clearly in this category that we talked about last week that you wrote about that has this engagement, but it's clearly a big ad supported platform that despite the fact that them having more users and more searches and whatever is positive, they're not aiming to just like, oh, here's another search. They actually behave quite differently where, oh, this is what you want. We're going to kick you out to the thing that you want straight away. And it's interesting because you see much less of a problem in that type of ad-supported platform. And it's going to be hard because when you regulate it, you need to define it tightly. But I don't know it's so much ad-supported platform as these companies that there's something about them that lends them towards driving towards engagement as their primary metric. That's when you start to have the problem. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. Again, (laughs) this is why I put the caveat that I don't have all the answers here. I do think there's an aspect here like, how do you then limit a platform that's driven by engagement versus one that's driven by sort of utility. And this is where I get back to the tree falling analogy. It's a really good bit of pushback. At the end of the day, I would say two things. I would say, one, if there are companies that suffer unintended consequences from this sort of approach, if the chief sort of example is Google, that sort of makes me feel better in a way, right? If someone is going to feel more burdened from regulation, it ought to be the largest company that can handle it best, that can deal with it best, and that is also owning one of the platforms that is sort of the problem, right? This is in contrast to sort of like some of the European regulation around the privacy, for example, GDPR, which was targeted at Google and Facebook, but actually falls disproportionately on everyone else, both in terms of compliance and also in terms of who is going to be hurt by this, right? So basically, I'm granting your point, but saying, well, if there is a place for unintended consequences to fall, that there are worse places for it to fall. The other thing I would say, number two, is a question around big picture, like, are we censoring? Are we limiting people's reach? To put sort of 
stricter limits and things on like there is no right to be on YouTube. There is no right to be on Facebook. That's basically a right to be able to publish what I want without having to pay for it. To me, that's why I want to lock down the infrastructure level. You have the right to publish whatever you want. If Google or Facebook or whoever is not incentivized to have that, or they're straight up barred from holding that, you can still go out and set up your own server and set up your own site. Now, are you going to get as much reach? Are you going to have to pay a ton of money? Well, yeah, but like that's you know, what was the phrase of freedom of reach versus freedom of speech? Like there's different sort of standards that apply there. And that is another example where your feedback's really good. But I think there are worse places for the tree to fall, I guess is the way I would put it. It's hard to argue. And I mean, I need to think more about it. I think we touched on it a little bit last week, but my natural inclination as a place to start is where you have algorithmic recommendations that-, that Which Google search is, by the way. Yes, but that keep occurring without user intervention. I think that's where the issue is. It's like the YouTube, the videos keep playing or Facebook, the news feed keeps going or Instagram, the feed keeps going. Like, And obviously it's going to be hard to define because there's scrolling on Facebook user intervention. Perhaps it is, but it's like- like something around where it just keeps on coming even when the user doesn't do anything. That's where I think the problems start to occur. Like that's when you end up down the YouTube rabbit hole. Well, the other thing, though, is, I mean, just to sort of like dive into this rabbit hole, you know, Facebook would say, well, you can control what's in your feed. You click stuff that you like and don't like. So actually, it's under user control. Like the issue is the more sort of specific you get, the easier it becomes this sort of game. Just to be super duper clear, I try to be clear in this article. I want to be clear here. I don't have all the answers to this by far. To me, this article is less about saying what regulations should be. It is more kind of acknowledgement that one, regulations are coming regardless. We see that around the world. And two, there is an issue here that I think does need to be addressed. We can sit here and dither about where that sort of vertical line should go. We could even dither about where the horizontal line should go. But as long as we all agree, there ought to be these two lines. And to me, that would be a tremendous outcome from this article and from this podcast. If this idea that we need to start thinking about the internet, not as a colossal sort of universal one thing, but as distinct layers, distinct types of services, and that the harm is definitely, I think, localized in a specific spot. And from there, then you can start getting into the details, which make no mistake, are very, very plentiful and very, very challenging. Yeah, 100%. The other reason to do this is because if it doesn't get done now and it's not done in a thoughtful way, my observation is at the start, I blame the regulators, but actually one step removed, the regulators care because everyone else cares. And I think the worst way for this to happen would be regulation by mob. And again, that's something where Cloudflare needed to be very principled around how it approached this stuff because every time there's some latest outrage, emotion takes over. It's no longer rational. People are just like, this thing is bad. We want to take it down. Why are you doing that? Like thinking through this stuff and having a principled stance and understanding and knowing where in the stack you ought to be applying pressure and where you're like, okay, this is distasteful, but that doesn't mean I think that this person doesn't get electricity or water or access to paper anymore because that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Like if we don't have this conversation now, it's going to happen in the heat of the moment. And that's when bad decisions get made. That's exactly right. And again, we're exiting a world where tech 
could do what it's want, where you could have an attitude of leave us alone, you're driving innovation. Like this stuff is coming regardless. And I think it would behoove tech to start to draw these lines. And the other thing to think about is I do think that there is a cleavage here and there's going to be a cleavage in technology. The companies that are spending the most on lobbying, that are pushing this the most, are the companies that I'm arguing should be sort of singled out. Like it's the Googles and the Facebooks and whatnot. And you think about that post that Mark Zuckerberg put about what sort of regulations should there be. It's all regulation that sort of aligns with what Facebook is already doing and already incentivized to do. What was strikingly absent from that was any sort of mention of advertising outside of like political advertising. And I don't think that's an accident because that is the area one where Facebook has the biggest advantages and two, it would hurt the most, but I'm not out here to hurt Facebook. Again, I think a lot of the issues Facebook faces are inherent to the platform as it are, are inherent to the internet, are inherent to the human condition, frankly. You know, a lot of the atrocities that Facebook is blamed for are atrocities that have been happening to humans by humans for many, many years, long before Facebook came along. And so this isn't a to pick on them by any means. But I do think there is a fundamental sort of breakdown in this when you separate the monetization from the users, from the supply, and there's no constraints on it. Like there is an issue here. And if we can start there and try to constrain it to there, I think we can ideally solve these social costs without foregoing the social benefits that I do think the internet very much does still provide. Yeah. 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 Very good. Well, uh, we've had our annual regulation kick. I kind of appreciate YouTube coming along because I swore that I was going to write less about Facebook this year. And so YouTube is stepping into the breach. It's kind of funny how almost substitutable they are. Like not the privacy stuff, but on the engagement stuff and the filter bubble stuff and the algorithms. It's telling like that those two are substitutable, give some sense as to where the focus should be from the types of stuff that we just discussed. Right. It gives the sense also that these are generalizable problems, right? It's not like Mark Zuckerberg is a bad person, right? You know, Facebook is blessed by its critics in many respects. The fact that they want to sort of make it personal, they want to impugn sort of bad motives. That's a great way to completely miss the point and to take actions that, again, go back to Europe to impose things, not just the GDPR, but also this copyright directive. Guess what? YouTube has invested $100 million in identifying copyrighted content. So guess who's going to benefit under a regime that basically demands that you filter content for copyright? It's going to be YouTube, right? And oh, it's like, it's like don't you see? Like, what are you? Oh, it's, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm, again, 100% with you. We're starting to get to the point of the maturity cycle where the internet companies are starting to deploy some of the cable company's tactics and it's immensely frustrating. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, anyhow, uh, it's good to talk to you. There's a lot happening this week, as I mentioned, so we'll see what we'll talk about next week. Do we decide what we powered through today? Oh, I mean, it was a beautiful day outside and I forewent it. I think we powered through this bit being very dead and dead and buried. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's true. It's done. Sounds good. So is this episode. <laughs> I'll talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right, bye-bye.